HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Greg Blaze, and with me today is... To co-host is Cutting the Curd legend and founder Anne Saxelby, fresh off her term as AFL-CIO president. How you doing today, Anne? AFL-CIO president? <laughs> George Meany, you know? Oh, Unions. Oh, nice. All right, cool. Got it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> we wish everybody a happy holidays out there in Cutting the Curd land. Uh, so this is the time of the year for people in the cheese world where all the forces that bind our industry together must mesh perfectly in order to keep the holiday river of cash and cheese flowing freely. Uh, it's an appropriate time to speak with those kingpins of the cheese industry, the importers and distributors. I have three of the best and far-reaching wholesale purveyors of both domestic and international cheese in America with me on the air today. So let's pick each other's brains for a minute, shall we? In the studio today, we have the inimitable maestro of the cheesemonger invitational, um, the owner of Larkin Cold Storage, the only man I know who can pull off wearing a cow suit for lengthy periods of time, and Adam Moskowitz. Moo! <laughs> How's it going, Adam? Quite well, sir. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, bud. And on the phone, we have one of my favorite cheesemongers in the history of mankind and a friend to cheese and mongers everywhere, uh, the wholesale sales manager of the Tamales Bay Foods, Deborah Dickerson. Howdy, Deborah. How you doing? <laughs> so massive air and boat containers are landing, we hope, and have landed to provide cheese counters with their most important orders of the year. Domestic distributors are gathering all the remaining queso of the year and slinging it out to counters nationwide. This is an important time for our industry as we draw near to the close of a very litigious and tumultuous year in terms of food safety, fuel costs, political embargoes on food, FDA craziness, et cetera, et cetera. And yet so many good things are happening, too. Uh, new cheese shops are opening. People are resurrecting farms and creameries. And new cheeses and mongers are emerging to push the industry forward. It's an interesting time. Along with the world around it, cheese distribution is undergoing changes as well. And one guy at the forefront of these changes is Adam Moskowitz. 
Adam, in the last five or ten years, I've seen family-owned import businesses consolidate with larger companies and some small distribution like disappear altogether. Consolidation seems to be the name of the game, and more products seem to be gathering under fewer rooftops. But you are the second or third generation distributor importer for your company, and it's hard to find a counter out there that hasn't had at least one of their products pass through the customs bonded warehouse here in Long Island City at Larkin Cold Storage. Maybe you could give us a little history on your company and tell us why it's been so successful over the years. We don't have enough time. <laughs> uh, real quick, real simple. Uh, I own Larkin Cold Storage. Larkin Cold Storage is a cold storage warehouse. Uh, we basically have two business units, International Transport and Warehouse Services. International Transport is used by the majority of cheese importers in the United States. I basically facilitate their import for them. And then Warehouse Services, I act as the warehouse for certain vendors in, in, in our industry, both uh, here and abroad. So I'm basically their warehouse. So I'm, I'm said simply a warehouseman. Um, I then have Columbia Cheese, which is my passion project, uh, where I'm sourcing uh, traditional village dairies, uh, making ideally either traditional or unique products uh, representing their terroir. Um, I only work with exclusives. I bring to market, and uh, I'm not a Me Too importer distributor. Um, and then lastly, I, I do the Cheesemonger Invitational, which is my favorite two days of the year. Why is Columbia your passion project? Did you, were you always in love with cheese? Uh, when, I know your dad was the, was the guy I dealt with um, when I was coming up, and uh, he's a much different cat than you. But um, yeah. you, you know. <laughs> I heard that, Deb. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, 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 thir I'm third generation industry. My grandfather was Ben Moskowitz. He owned a butter and egg distribution company called Walker Butter and Egg, which became uh, one of the leading importers of cheese in the United States, if not the first. Um, my father left that company, started Larkin in 1978. So Larkin's been around since 1978. Columbia Cheese, um, in its various iterations, has been around since the beginning of importing. Um, I relaunched it uh, about three years ago to focus on uh, foreign producers of exceptional product. So I'm, it's a passion project because uh, it's very difficult to make money in specialty cheese. And at the same time, there are traditions that need to be honored and respected and or uh, types of cheese that need to be uh, revered instead of feared. And there are new cheeses that cheesemakers of old are now making that deserve a place in the case. And so I passionately pursue that. What cheeses need to be revered rather than feared? Limburger. Why Limburger? Well, because Limburger has a, a, an impression of my grandma's stinky house. Um, it, is, it, is, it is renowned for that. Um, but in fact, it's an amazing uh, washed soft ripened cheese. And it only really stunk so bad back in the day because of things like poor refrigeration. And so I've taken on the task of trying to rebrand, reestablish, or heighten the flavor profile of a Limburger, for example. And I do the same thing with something like Gruyere, for example. I thank you for that, Adam. Oh, why, Deb, you know, you're one of my inspirations. I, when I came on board in this industry, Deb was working for a company called 3D Cheese. Yeah. And, and that company was specifically, if not solely, responsible for getting mongers better educated on the counter. Tell us what. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask, uh, well, I guess uh, I was going to ask Adam, um, in, your, in Columbia Cheese, or with Columbia Cheese, how many producers are you currently working with and uh, what's kind of the goal as far as how many 
you would like to eventually work with? And I guess then a second question is, could you address the difficulties of working with these um, artisan producers and getting their product from where they are in Europe to you at Larkin? I don't have the number off the top of my head, um, but I would say the producers are less than 20. Um, and that number is trying to be as finite as possible. Uh, the cheesemakers that I'll work with moving forward um, have to create exceptional product. Uh, well, I could tell you wholeheartedly there's product in this market today that I had first look at but chose not to participate as Columbia Cheese because I didn't think it was um, of quality for me to handle. Um, so moving forward, I, I, can't, I can't express that number because I don't, I don't really know. Um, I will, I'll work with, it, it's all, at this point for me, it's about serendipity, if not fortuity. If they come my way and it's an exceptional product, I'll work with it. And how about volume? Because being a guy who knows the in and outs of distribution, um, you know that, you know, with certain things, you have to move quite a lot of it to, you know, to make your living. So how do you reconcile that with working with uh, small producers? Small producers. It's, it, that's so it's, it's, it's a responsibility as well as uh, um, I want to call it a responsibility as well as an opportunity. So we'll take a cheese like Hollerhocker, for example. Um, I've worked very hard with this producer to swift his production. He used to make 12,000 wheels of Appenzell, and he was guaranteed sales on that item. And now I've got him making Hollerhocker, which is not the case. Every year I get him to produce a little bit more. Um, and every year I'm basically being a little bit more uh, ambitious regarding what I think I could sell for him. But the truth be told is if, God forbid, something bad happens, like an FDA issue, um, he, he will be in trouble as well as his uh, – farmers. So when I say an opportunity, it's an opportunity because I, I, with these small producers, in effect, it's going to sound weird, but you could, you could buy the dairy, right? Yeah, of course. You could buy the dairy. So if a guy makes X amount of pounds, and that X amount of pounds is something that doesn't scare people, which shouldn't scare the people I'm talking to today, because we all know how many pounds we can move on a given item, um, you could buy the farm, basically. But at the same time, you then have to sell the cheese. And at the same time, you have to make sure you're in compliance in order to ensure that you don't have issues with FDA. I always, I always, whenever I talked, and I know uh, Deborah, because you were you worked with the Neil's Yard Dairy in the past. That's really a, a a tricky situation to get into when you control so much of what they of what they produce. I've always blessing uh, and a curse. Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. I just as as a monger, I've always shied away from trying to take too much of anybody's cheese because it puts too much responsibility uh, on me as a monger. And uh, I mean, for you as a wholesaler, it's got to be even even more. Well, and for the farmer too, you're you're encouraging them to put all their eggs in one basket. And traditionally, with farming in general, that's never a good idea. So it's always it's a it's an interesting thing to try and navigate. Did uh, well, then uh, there there comes things like business integrity and ethics and whatnot. For me, anybody that's ever done business with me gets paid, regardless of any issue or mishap, what have you. I am always responsible. That's how I operate my business. I can't speak for others, but that's how we work. Um, and when you make bookings, when you have a, a producer that makes a limited amount of production and you're making those bookings, you need to make sure that you're actually getting those bills paid, um, which becomes this interesting discussion about distribution and terms of sale and all this jazz and how much you're floating, blah, 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 blah. Said simply, I'll only take on what I think I could do. I, I, cause, because there are families and farms on the line. Yeah, there are. That was the thing about uh, about the Neil's Yard Dairy uh, Debs that I always was impressed with in the, in the beginning when I dealt with them is that they would only ever they would resurrect like you like you do out of you take product or you take producers and you make them better. You give them you help to make them 
to help to help them make better product. But I, I seem to recall, Deborah, that the Neal's Yard would only take a certain amount of product from each producer. Am I right there? Yeah, it was uh, it was Randolph's goal never to take uh, never to take above like forty eight percent whatever not to take the the lion's share and I think the thing that I always appreciated about Randolph was um, and many people have I think modeled their business after this is that it was the process of selection so it was encouraging speaking of the economics of cheese making it was encouraging the cheese maker to make a more flavorful or a more balanced cheese, and for that, um, he would be paid more. So it behooved him not just to make more cheese, but to make better cheese and make more money. If he made less cheese it's, it, and it was of better quality, it was, it was a win-win proposition. But Randolph was always very, um, very cautious about being the sole bread, the, sorry, purchase purchaser of uh, the majority of cheese. Yeah, and then then makes them sort of stand on their own uh, on their own two feet, you know, as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing Greg that you said about um, as a cheesemonger not wanting to uh, w- not wanting to take all of someone's cheese. I think the other thing is that the market is very savvy now. We have people who are paying attention to their pellets. And it's uh, I think it's a good thing to give cheesemakers a opportunity to be more widely represented um, at Smallest Bay Foods, we work with um, the majority of the cheeses that we offer are American artisanal, and we put we will put limits sometimes on what people can buy, so that we can expose the cheese to more people. Um, it also makes sure that uh, it is it is appreciated. Wow. Well, um, Deborah, I guess um, so. You've been. <laughs> I, I have a I have a question for you, and I have to I have to say. I didn't write this first uh, part, so I'm going to blame it on Greg. I'm going to blame it on Greg, but most of it, most of it, it would come straight from my mouth. So, Deborah, you've been a retailer um, back to when uh, stone tablets were used as a calendar. Greg, that, Gre- yeah. Uh, so um, that was not me. That was not me. <laughs> and then, uh, so you started with uh, uh, Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor. You've been a distributor. Um, and at one time operated your own cheese distribution business called 3D Cheese, which we touched on. Um, you're the first person to represent Neil's Yard Dairy in the United States. Um, you've always been a trailblazer in the way cheese gets sort of to and fro in our industry, and now you run the uh, sales for Cowgirls in Tamales Bay. Um, I was hoping you could talk a bit more about the Neil's Yard and 3D Cheese business, which I think was really ahead of its time, and, and sort of what worked and what didn't work in terms of how a distribu- integ- uh, distributor integrates with uh, their end user and, uh, and sort of, you know, sort of, yeah, what the, and, and sort of talk to the scale of, of, of the business a little bit and what it takes to run a small distribution business. Sure. I need to just make two tiny corrections, though. Unfortunately, the stone tablet comment is true, right? But the corrections are, I was actually the second person in the U.S. to represent Neil Jardieri. It was a lovely fellow named David Lockwood before oh, me. Oh, David. I'm the worst. Only worked part-time. And luckily, uh, when, I, uh, when I came on board, um, through the help of many, many people and some extravagant cheese, we were able to make it full-time. And the other one was 3D Cheese wasn't exactly a distributor. We more represented the cheesemakers in the marketplace, and I had the very, very good fortune to um, to get paid to do sales and also to, uh, to to educate people. So the beginning of that was Neil Jardieri, and um, it was 
uh, tied together very closely with Larkin. Without Larkin um, uh, being able to bring the cheese into the country and having license to bring cheese into the country, um, Neil Jardiri would have never become what it is today. And it was actually Adam's dad who had the vision um, of, of making that business grow. So it was pretty, absolutely, it was amazing. So what we did is basically here in the United States, we represented the cheese maker um, through Neil Jardiri, and we would call customers like, like we do and uh, take their orders for cheese. And then those orders were sent to England and to Neil Jardiri, and they would put the the order together, they would ship it on a boat, it would come into Larkin and be received, and then it would clear customs, and, the, and, and I think that's another point that deserves to be mentioned, if there were any problems with customs, Joe Moskowitz was the guy you wanted to know, right? So he would set the cheese free, um, uh, and, and that it, it's an important, important fellow to know. Um, and basically then the, the customer who ordered the cheese was received responsible for, for working the transport out to get the cheese out of Larkin. Again, without the folks at Larkin, that never would have happened because I swear they know every single trucker in the United States. Is that true, Adam? Oh, <laughs> yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I, I could basically have a pallet dropped anywhere at any time whenever I want. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty yeah, it's darn awesome. Yeah, I mean, but what's, what, what I think is really awesome here is that you were a pioneer, and I'd like to also highlight that Columbia Cheese in its current iteration is deeply and directly inspired by Randolph Hodgson and the work of 3D Cheese, meaning mm -hmm. um, the concept of advance order pre-sold items where the people selling the items are selling it directly to the people who will be selling the items to the public um, and then using distribution to actually get the product through. Um, that was revolutionary. Well, you are very kind. It was really all, it was driven by the cheese, though, right? Because what we really wanted is we wanted to make sure that that cheese didn't sit anywhere um, and go neglected, um, that it got to the counter or the chef um, in the very quickest way possible and in the, in the very best condition. Um, and again, I think that the, the vision of Randolph to be selecting cheeses for their flavor profile, and he would select for specific customers in the United States. It was, uh, it was amazing. But you know what? It was, again, your dad who wanted to empower retailers to do their own importing. And that was monumental, absolutely monumental. What do you, what's your opinion on that, Adam? I know you've got some strong opinions on that. Yeah, I, this is, I, first of all, I'm very flattered and thank you. I have a very strong opinion on a lot of things that are said, and I don't know if I could really capture it in one sitting, but I'll try. It becomes this interesting discussion about distributors having inventory versus cheesemongers placing advance orders for imports. And when you get to that point, then in reality, you're, you're acting as an importer. Yeah. And right. that, and that you're, 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 you're plotting, you're programming, you're, you're allocating for yourself. Um, it just—I don't. This is—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a very—it's—it's—it's the—it's the bane of where our industry is today, which is how much is advance order and how much is inventory. Every cheese shop, or, or so many cheese shops, they want to say we got the cheese from the source. You know, I think that that drives that drives them to want to import it. But there's so much 
It's such, the, such a textured operation to get that. Yeah, but if you're communicating, and that's that's what I loved about 3D cheese, and that's what I'm trying to inspire with Columbia cheese, is that you could have a dialogue with the maker. You could have a dialogue with the importer. But you still need the supply chain to get the product from point A to point right. B. Totally. And you can't set that up yourself. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Herculean task. Yeah. Like, like, who wants to take – who wants to – Buy a bunch of trucks. Who wants to manage that? It's really right. difficult. I, I was picking up wheels of Essex uh, Comte from Larkin Cold Storage in a black Lincoln Continental town car from a car <laughs> but the, and, and, and that's my point. Yet I'm, yet I'm responsible for the coal chain. Yeah. Yeah. So you just, well, I mean, and, you I, just, and I have like, to say, like, I have to, I have to give my dad Bill Sachs will be a little shout out, and he's out, he always emphasizes he's like, you know, do what you do well. And let other right. people do what they do well, exactly. and that's how you build a successful business in the end, you know, because you need all the pieces of the puzzle and all the areas of expertise. And so the dialogue is important. You've got to have the dialogue, but you have to also respect the supply chain. Deb, what do you got? Well, what I was going to say is the thing that I am so impressed with when I think back of those times in the late 90s, right, when Neil Jardieri was, uh, was, was really gaining momentum in this country, is that it was all about relationships, right? It's about the relationship with the cheesemaker to give him feedback on, on his or her cheese and, and what could make it sell better, right? It's the relationship with the cheesemonger and the, and the customer at the counter so that they can articulate what it is that's happened that makes this cheese so great or cost what it does or whatever. But in the logistics chain, those were relationships that were um, well-seasoned. I mean, and I think that, that, you know, Adam has only grown that business based upon his word, his handshake, and his ability to do what he does better than anybody else. And all the time. And the relationship there, I think, frequently gets overlooked as we, uh, as we, as we celebrate this business. Well, when you speak about relationships, and I think the relationship with the distributor is vitally important. And that I think often, especially with using Neil's Yard as an example, you know, they're just doing drage. Right, they're not taking. They might be taking ownership of the product, but really, they're not. They're not owning the relationship, and they're not really selling the cheese. Yet, there's a responsibility there by them, and I don't think that responsibility is often acknowledged and/or respected by yeah. who? By the retailer. I think retailers want to bang distribution. I think everybody wants to point their finger at the distributor and say, "God damn you!" It's a thankless oh. job, a lot, of, a lot of levels. But I don't know. I don't know if I. I mean, I, 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 I feel I, like it's I a role. It's maybe needs to be redefined a little bit. I feel like we're because the nature of distribution is changing and the nature of people's relationships with the product are changing and their desire to have more relationship. I feel like probably the role of the distributor just needs to be redefined. You know, I, uh, if you think about it, though, and, and current in my current reincarnation as um, doing sales for a distributor, I feel that um, it. I look at it from a different perspective than I used to, right? So one thing, yes, everybody wants to have the relationship with the cheesemaker, but the truth of the matter is is that if the cheesemaker is busy talking to every retailer on the phone or giving them a tour of their facility, yeah, it's going to be really cheese. hard to get to get any cheese made, right? Yeah, totally. So I think that the, the critical point, right, is people want the relationship, but what they what they need is they need the information, right? And that's where... That's where I think 3D was 
why we were successful only is that we didn't we didn't get the information to sit on it we got the information to share it so that people could feel part of that relationship yeah, hence hence why I said it I or I thought it was a tiny bit ahead of its time unfortunately we're gonna have to take a short break um, but you know after these messages we'll be right back with more lively discussion thanks a lot You are listening to Pink and Purple by Alan Wilkes. I was alone one night When I was awoken by your blinding light You appeared in front of me That's when I slipped into the mystery The dairy farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd, live on Heritage Radio. I'm in the studio today with Ann Saxelby and Adam Moskowitz, and on the phone is Deborah Dickerson. Uh, right before we went to break, Adam, you were about to make an important point, and I was wondering if you wanted to revisit that for us. We were, we were pushing your buttons yeah, more we were, accurately, we which, I, which I like. I'm glad buttons. we're... <laughs> well, I just think this is a really, really important topic. I think understanding the supply chain and having amicable two-way relationships with your distributor and understanding the roles and responsibility of your various distributors is a really important topic to discuss. And and what I'd like to highlight is that um, there's a lot of different distributors in our industry. Frankly, and you could be you you are considered a distributor for New York Metro. Um, 
And yet also Gourmet Foods International is considered a distributor for the New York Metro. And the size and scope between the two are drastically different. So, so I want to know what inspires you. Why, why are you taking on a role of you? You were a retailer. What, what, what inspired you to take on the role of a distributor versus allowing the distributors to do their job? So, well, for me, I feel like, um, you know, I started with this really tight focus of selling cheese uh, from, you know, local regional farms. And my goal in getting into the business in general was to kind of be the best, uh, be, be a bridge between the farmer and the end user and um, sell as much cheese for these farms as I possibly could. Because I feel like my passion for um, the cheese that they make, for the lives that they lead for the way that they run their farms. I, I'm interested in all the details, you know, between the field and the finished product. And uh, so my goal was always to sell the most cheese that I could. And so I started with my little shop in the Essex market and we were approached by chefs pretty, um, you know, right off the, right off the bat. And so we kind of grew a little bit into distributing to restaurants um, and then we were approached by Daniel Baloud to uh, curate the cheese counter for his shop at Peacery Baloud, which opened in Lincoln Center um, in 2011. And that was really the first time that we had thought about selling to another retail shop. Um, and uh, it just seemed like a really cool opportunity, you know. So we were like, okay, so we're going to start. And why were you there? And see, and that, and that, and I think that's a point that I, Deb, that Deb started with with 3D Cheese, which is you were delivering information and you were delivering quality. And you were filling a gap where I'd say mainstream large-scale distributors could not fill. They still don't. That's Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. People, and, and I feel like, you know, it was kind of, I feel like timing is everything. So people were interested in the types of cheese that we were selling. In these local small production cheeses, they were hard to get. Nobody could get their hands on them really. Or if they, it was a tremendous amount of legwork. And so we were kind of providing a service in that way. And then once we started with the piecery, we we're like, well, you know, other shops started contacting us. And so we thought, well, are we going to turn away this business? Are we not going to turn away this business? And we decided not to. And now we find ourselves in this really weird slash interesting position where, you know, you realize that in order to do the job of a distributor well, it, well, and to, and you, to, and to make you, money do you, doing do it. Do you have more respect for the distributor now that you're doing distribution? Oh, yeah. And you realize what a tremendous leap it is to get from, you know, from small scale to large scale. Um, we, uh, my business partner and I went to visit um, Peterson, which is a large distributor base on the West Coast. And they have a, a warehouse here in Munaki, New Jersey. Um, and they help us get some of our French cheeses in and um, went to visit them. And, uh, you know, it, it's just it's a whole different universe from from where we are. And it's a. Uh, it just it's it's an interesting question because you're like how how do you do that job how do you do it well and how do you make money doing it and you know I don't know if it's possible to do all of them I still don't have the answer to that question but the, but we're just you know we're we're well, well, so throwing it to Deb so Deb works for Tamales Bay yes there and I wish you had a there's like the hand trick that my father taught me which is producer exporter importer distributor retailer we're all going for the consumer that's for imports for domestics it then becomes producer distributor retailer all going um, so that's three fingers versus five sorry if I lost you Deb works for Tamales Bay Foods Tamales Bay Foods is a leading retailer as well as a leading producer as well as has been known to do imports and most importantly also yeah, does distribution like, sure. and, everything and Columbia Cheese loves working with Tamales Bay Why? because we've done our field research and every customer of Tamales Bay loves them because 
they have a limited range, and every time their product is delivered, is it's exceptional. Oh, if I may, so if I may say, I think that, <laughs> that that's the key to to everything that we're talking about. Yes. is to know your limits to what, what you can do. I mean, as a as a, a cheesemonger, as a retailer, I I enjoy having some direct relationships. I don't need the distributor, and that's defined define direct. And the, one of the points that I'm trying to make is direct. Having a communication is direct. Having the transaction yeah. does not necessarily. I appreciate require... having someone drive the cheese to my store for me. Uh, that that's a big that's a that's a big thing for me. I don't want to. I, I like, but I but I do appreciate like the direct communication with with the cheese makers uh, because that helps me sell my cheese to my customers and it helps me educate my staff. If I can get them into, and sometimes I turn over purchasing. Uh, I turn over those relationships. And you're very, I feel like, Greg, you're a very enlightened cheese buyer in that way because you've been in the business forever and you know. I predate stone tablets. Is that what you're saying? I think, I think you predate stone tablets. Yeah. You're way, you're way older than Deborah. No. (laughs) Um, But no, I think that uh, you more than most people um, understand sort of how to, how to balance, you know, that direct relationship. Yep. And so how many vendors do you have? Buying, how many how many vendors do you have for cheese purchasing at, at your establishment? I I deal with forty one vendors Bang! myself. That's but, my but point. Vendors no, that's also good. includes include makers at because yeah, everything's a mix. It's a mix. Yeah, you, you need to have your main stream broadline distributor for your hardware. Yep. Right, because you're not going to want to import your three kilo breeze or that metaphor. And at the same time, you want to have your hardcore close relationships with your domestic, even even foreign producers. But you then have to honor the supply chain and make sure that it's imported correctly and distributed correctly. As a what in my relationships with with both uh, cheese makers, farmers, and and distributors, one of your biggest your your one of your most important jobs, other than selling the cheese as the buyer, is to make sure everybody gets paid. You know, I mean, just right. like your job. I if I'm going to do business with a distributor, I have to make sure that they get you know they they get paid for their services. And it's overlooked by so many people who run cheese shops and who who purchase things on every level. When the bill comes in, they're nowhere to be found. You know, and, yeah, don't get which me, is like, so astonishing. It's like I do not, I just don't understand it. Yeah, I don't either. And I have to say, uh, because we are sensitive to the issue, being cheesemakers as well as distributors, is when uh, Sue sits down to pay the bills, it's always the cheesemakers who get paid first, right? And gotta it's be. You, you gotta it's be. It's not it's always just, the case. But it should be, though. I with, agree. But, I, I mean, when people want to know why I'm always agitated, this is why. Well, I know a lot you. Of, lot, no, there's, there's a lot of people that come at me and think that I might be abrasive or agitated or what have you. And it's because I see the contradiction. There's a ton of people in our industry that promote the concept of great cheese, great cheese makers, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to paying their bills, they don't pay their freaking bills. I just want everyone to know that Adam is slowly removing his clothing here in the world. He's now shirtless. <laughs> and he's pacing. I can feel the heat. No. No, it, it's, well. Well, He's I, just I, getting ready for his fondue hot tub tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow, tomorrow at Larkin in my barnyard, I built a barnyard inside my warehouse. We're having a party. It's going to be a fondue freak show. There will be fondue mud wrestling. There will be fondue slip and slide, and there will be a fondue hot tub. I'm bringing so, my kid. But, uh, as long as you're ready to throw him in the hot tub, yeah, we're, we're good to go. Yeah, yeah. He will we're eat. He will go. eat his way out of that hot tub. <laughs> the, my my simple point here is that. Um, Let's talk, going back to Neil Jarre, which is an, a really cool 
uh, way of looking at our business because you can, are connected to the maker through Neil Jarge, but then you have to honor the supply chain to get the product. And my curiosity in this discussion is how can we make that better? Yeah. How can you make – I'm sorry. You, you were – How can we make the Neil Jarge paradigm better? That was, that was what I, I – when I dealt with you, Debs, in, in 3D Cheese, that's what I thought was happening in the, in the U.S., uh, that's and it, that's what I thought you were you were doing for us as cheesemongers here in the United States was building that bridge. Yes, well, I, yeah, I I have to say I think Adam, your question is a really good one, and I'm I'm not so sure that I have an answer. But the one thing that I, I'm going to throw on the table here is one of the things that I think we need to make sure we're doing is taking the education back to the cheesemakers, especially in the U.S., and perhaps internationally in terms of food safety, because the way things are going, um, I'm not sure how your products are being affected, Adam, the ones that you're bringing in directly, but it is a huge deal with a lot of the small producers that we are working paperwork, with. Paperwork, right? I mean, it's, nobody's it's, doing it's, the paperwork. It's not paperwork well, it's, now. It's not only – I mean, and I, I am a big believer in, in good HACCP plans, and it's something that we ask of the people that we do business with, the cheesemakers that we do business with, is to we, – we want to have their HACCP plan on record because we want to not only protect the customers, but we want to protect the other cheesemakers that we work with. Um, heaven forbid should we take um, – product that is uh, in trouble into our own warehouse and have it cross-contaminate other people's product. It's not just one cheesemaker's livelihood, um, but many. So I think helping people understand the scope of the laws um, and FDA regulations um, and um, working together with the FDA to make a good relationship happen, as the American Cheese Society now is trying to do, I think is absolutely critical. Otherwise, we're going to have more casualties in the marketplace like Sally Jackson. My problem is that I've taken on a mode of compliance with my imports, starting with the raw milk pilot program a year ago. And what I've seen because of that is because I am transparent in my ingredients, I am transparent mm -hmm. on my invoice, I'm now being actually targeted by FDA because I'm the one, because I'm, being because, because I'm being honest and because I'm putting clearly on my outer carton and clearly on the cheese, raw milk, I'm now being subjected to a tremendous amount of FDLs. And again, I'm not here to bash FDA. What I'm here to do is tell people that those that are not being in a mode of compliance, they're actually putting us all in jeopardy. Yes, I got to say, in, in general, just as a person who's worked with cheese, the honesty in the, not like little white lies coming down, you know, way way back when I worked for Dean and Deluca, we would rename things just so that other people couldn't come in and, and take oh, them. Oh, school, yeah, and, I, I and, get it. I, I've seen it. But I it's know like, it. and slowly the industry Wrong. is being dragged into, you know, into having to break all all of those habits. Do you know what I'm? Do you know yeah, what I mean, mean my big yeah. Let's. I'll call it straight and simple, man. The amount of people that promote Vacheron Mondor on Facebook, it's driving me nuts. Yeah, every it's time a I much. see, it, every time I see it, it makes me nauseous. I could tell you a story about Henry Kaplan of Amazon Dishwa doing something guy. similar, doing something rather similar in the yeah. Wall Street Journal and causing was, an uproar amongst our industry yeah. for raw milk. And we're doing it now. And my point is, is instead of instead of letting a customer dictate, I want Vacheron Mondor, so I'm going to now bring in Vacheron Mondor, and clearly there's going 
going to be a reckless importer that brings in something like Vacheron Mondor, why not sell them some Harbison? Absolutely. See, I used to, I used to, and Deborah, you, I used to get, um, I used to get so upset with people because back in the days, in those in those nineties days, I had a lot of cheese, maybe a lot of cheese that wasn't supposed to be there, but it didn't advertise it. I just wanted to make sure that it was on the counter so that customers could know what that what that tasted like. And I remember that Wall Street Journal article, and yeah. I knew right then that all of it was over. The whole shit was up. The gig was up at that point in time because everybody needs to have everybody know that they have the cool well, stuff that nobody and else has. And that's what I find frustrating It's right now, really frustrating. As, as someone that's trying to protect and promote raw milk cheese, I, I have to let you all know that I, I understand. I'm a DJ. I understand what it feels like to have the cool hit new white label. I get it. But it doesn't mean we can at this time in our industry promote it. You can not bring what you know is contraband cheese right. into your counter and think that that is the cool, proper thing to do for and our And also with social media now, it's That's over in one second. It is. Because, yeah. some, you know, it's like the same as politicians posting inappropriate pictures. It's like, you know, everybody it's knows. Of their private parts? Right away. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, the, the, thing, the thing, though, and, and I'm going one step farther removed is it's not about the raw milk for god's no, sake it's about, about good cheese exactly. that's it and it's about good practices you know good manufacturing practices good cheese making practices and i'll just come back to HACCP quickly which is if you've got a good tight HACCP plan you have a dynamite training program right it just it just helps keep things done well and you prove it and i think that that's a fair uh, request of someone who is feeding the population in any case it's not the raw milk it's no, well-made cheese I, I i i agree and i I, I know you do. I, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't wooden boards. It was unsanitary right. conditions. That's all it ever right. is. Understanding that sanitary versus unsanitary is just where you go, and and realizing that FDA is not the enemy. No, but they've got right. a, they've got a job to do. And if we don't have the proper organizations communicating effectively and efficiently with them, ACSCIAA, then we're screwed. Well, yeah. but there is. You, you talk about. Uh, you talked about transparency, and and I and and we were all talking about scale. So we have people that work at a cheese counter, cheesemongers, and, and we're all, we've all promoted the culture of, of cheesemonger, you, you included that. I mean, you, you, you make it cool. Champion. That's what I mean. Yeah, you I, want people that think it's cool to be, to be a cheesemonger, and people cool, cool want. Is, my, my point is cool is compliance. Cool, uh, here, here, I'm the biggest rebel out of everyone I know. Everybody who knows me knows that. And I'm making a simple call to arms for all of us. Cool is actually being in compliance right now. Protecting raw milk is required by all of us through the supply chain by making sure our labels are done correctly, making sure our signs are done correctly, and making sure we are selling and bringing into our stores what we should be bringing and selling into our stores. And that it's traceable. Bravo. Traceability is yep. huge. Yeah, dude, being, being, being a nerd is cool. Being, being, yeah. being like crazy database-oriented, also cool. Yeah, it is. Like, the, the, look at what I got. Look what, look what I got. I got what nobody else got. That ain't cool, dude. No, but everybody does it. And well, stop it! But. Like not right. Like just stop it! Like I get it. Like I. I it's I, the scope. It's the scale. People don't understand the scale. That's why it's important for people like you who are distributors to say, "Hey, look, you know, you're, you know, to to explain to them the scale of that one Vacheron Mondor." It, you know, it compared to jeopardizes what? all of raw yeah, milk. Well, and having a cool cheese is, does not make your counter. <laughs> having a cool shopping experience is what makes your counter. Deliver a great tasting piece of cheese to your consumer, and you win. You don't need contraband to win. 
said. Well said. Well, it's good to know that, you know, Adam, Deborah, Greg, stewards of, uh, you know, they're good stewards bringing cheese to the to the cheese counters this holiday season. So, you know. I've been going over this raw milk pasteurized thing for the for long, longest time. I had a woman today who's been shopping with me for 20 years in the city, you know, uh, close to close to it. And she, you know, she said to me, today she still doesn't understand the difference you know, between between raw and pasteurized. And I say very simply, you know, uh, my personal preference, I feel like raw milk is a favorable condition for the, for the milk to be turned into cheese, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right, right. I still believe that because we have worked with pasteurized milk uh, for cheese making under 60 days, that we make some of the very best tasting with pasteurized milk. You mean the cowgirl creamery? Your, well, your Mount Tams? And well, your, I wasn't going to say Hawks. that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I meant we as a collective American industry. Um, but because we've had to, right? We've had to. So we've learned how to make it work well. Um, and I am a huge raw milk cheese fan to beat the band. So um, we're going to have to close up shop here in a, in a little bit, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to first... Um, you know, uh, ask Adam just to opine for a second. Um, we've got another cheesemonger invitational coming up real soon, right around the corner, right? Yeah, San Francisco. In my hometown here. It's beautiful. Uh, we got about 37 mongers signed up. I'm sending another Italy monger out there. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be a good one. I hope, I hope everybody out there on the West Coast is ready to rock and roll. We're going to cut some curd. Everybody's <laughs> practicing. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I just want to, I want to thank, um, Adam and Ann and Deborah uh, for coming in, and this is a larger discussion, and uh, this is just the tip I of the iceberg. I smell an ACS session. I yeah. think, Adam, uh, you should uh, recommend that. Uh, I can that. see the name now. It'll be Cool as Compliance. Cool as Compliance. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say, Deb, thank you for inspiring me. The education that I do, the cheesemonger promotion that I'm about, and, and who I am as a cheese lover is directly related to you. You're in the echelon of that. Zappos, and, and thank you for carrying the torch for us. Ditto on that. Well, you are very kind. Tr- Trito on yeah. that. <laughs> well, in our final thank you, I want to thank you all for uh, turning into and tuning into this episode of Cutting the Curd. We'll be back next week for more. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.